Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Ryan Singer on the show. He's the head of strategy at Basecamp. And he just wrote a book on how they build products, products called Shape Up. And we get into the principles and fundamental truths of what it really means to build products, how you can do it better, and his best advice on how to become a better product manager. So I hope you enjoy. So Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. So I want to get right into it because I have so many questions for you. You've been at Basecamp for, I think, 16 years, which I saw on LinkedIn, which is crazy (laughs) in this day and age. And you decided to finally write a book about how your team builds products there called Shape Up. We've been talking about it internally, and I'm really excited to get your sort of actual input on it. But my first question, I guess, is sort of what brought you to writing a book? Well, Jason, you know, the founder of Basecamp pulled me into a room one day and he said, hey, I think you should write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Simple enough. I had been kind of in this role for quite a few years, actually. It really started in 2009. So quite a while ago, I guess that would be 10 years ago, actually. At that time, we had four different products, Basecamp, Backpack, Campfire, and High Rise. They were all software as a service products. And they all had very different separate databases for usernames and passwords and stuff like that, you know, and people Mm -hmm. would have to have different accounts. We took on this huge technical project called 37ID, which was to kind of combine it all into a single seamless authentication so people could just sign in once and move between all their accounts and everything. And it was just a huge gnarly project. And in the years leading up to that, I had kind of been straddling the design and programming roles. I was mainly a UI designer, but I had been learning more and more programming. And I had been kind of learning the language and the the universe of programmers, you know? And I found myself kind of in this position where I could kind of manage that project. And so a lot of, not a lot of, but maybe a third of the techniques from the book actually originated back in those days when I had this challenge of like, how the heck am I going to like pull this off? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it was kind of a combination of applying a lot of the things I had learned about how programmers actually manage the complexity of their code and using techniques like separation of concerns and factoring and things that I learned from that side of the world and then applying that up to the level of product. So kind of how do we actually break the whole product into pieces and integrate front and back end and and stuff like that. So um, actually that was kind of the first time that I had done that. And then coming out of that, It was a little bit like, hmm, what do we call what you're doing? I think we landed on product manager at the time as the title. But as you know, this role has been kind of fuzzy and getting clearer over the years, you know, what it even means to be a product manager. And then in 2012, we ended up using some of the techniques from that project and also some more to totally redesign Basecamp into Basecamp 2. That was 2012. And I also kind of led a lot of that effort. So over the years, I've kind of been formalizing and learning how to articulate these techniques that we've figured out for how to actually get really challenging things done and repeatedly ship meaningful work that actually feels like you're getting somewhere on the product. Mm -hmm. And it's a combination of getting more clear and articulate about how we actually do it. And also just looking around and noticing so many teams that we talk to are struggling with never ending projects with feeling like code monkeys, you know, feeling like they're not really a lot of product managers don't really feel like they're product managers. They feel like project managers, you know, 
because they just have all this work coming down that they're supposed to somehow squeeze into, you know, they have to play calendar Tetris and task Tetris to just squeeze everything together and hopefully they can finish everything. And we have an alternative to that. And uh, we have a pretty long record of success with that. So it just felt like the time was right. Like, here's a good time to actually spell out what we're doing and hopefully help people kind of share in some of the success that we've been experiencing. Right. So then I guess that actually gets perfectly into my first question, which is, Something that I think about a lot as I talk to more and more people on the show is much of the way that people build products is culturally and industry-specific to the company that they're at. So when you wrote this down, how much of this do you think is sort of like useful and relevant to other people at other companies? I would imagine a lot. But then like, do you think that this is sort of the right way to do it? Or is there a set of principles that you think is the right way that it should be applicable to other businesses? Like, how do you help people think about how to take the lessons from your book and apply them to their roles? Yeah. So in a way, the book is actually two books in one. It's a book of principles and trying to articulate what I think are the actual just fundamental truths of dealing with product. And then at the same time, it has very tactical techniques for how we address those facts and those principles. So for example, I've been trying to, you know, this question has been coming up, so I've been learning how to respond to it, you know? And one of the things that comes to mind is just, if you want to make an omelet, an omelet always starts with raw eggs and it's just a fact, right? Yep. And then there's a lot of ways to make an omelet, but the fact that it starts with raw eggs is a simple fact. Projects don't come out of nowhere. They actually have to be shaped. Somebody has to do the work of figuring out what the project is, what the boundaries are, how much design work is specified up front and how much is left for the teams to decide. That's what we call shaping. And all projects start with unshaped work. And whether or not you talk about that, you're going to run into the consequences of scheduling work that's poorly shaped. So if you take on a project, let's say it's like build a calendar and you don't actually specify what that means, then how does the team know what hundredth of a calendar that they should build in the first iteration? You know, they could be focusing on schedule alignment and invitations and accepting requests for things, or they could be doing high fidelity dragging interactions, you know, on a calendar grid, right? There's a totally different starting point and they would be in a totally different place after two weeks or six weeks or or whatever unit of time, you know? And at the same time, so that's too open-ended. At the same time, if we go too concrete and we actually give them you know, perfectly detailed mock-ups for everything they're supposed to build and then try to define all the tasks up front and then just assign a bunch of tasks to the team, that's over-specified. That's where we don't actually know exactly what's going to really happen once they lift the hood and get their hands dirty and start to actually try and build it. The way that you think it's going to shake out is always different than the way it actually does in terms of what the technical work is and what you get tripped up on and what you really have to do. So we have to figure out how to define the work at the right level of abstraction. So that's an example where part one of the book is about this process of shaping the work. And you can use the specific techniques that we use, but you can also take away the language, you know? And uh, so what we're doing is giving a lot of language for these different phases of work. So for example, when we finish shaping, we have some work that has better odds of success because we've done more thinking about it up front. We've clarified kind of what the outcome is. We've defined it at the right level of abstraction. Instead of using too many high-level mock-ups, we've got, you know, breadboards and fat marker sketches and stuff like that. But then we're not on a conveyor belt. The work doesn't automatically go into some backlog or some queue. We have what we call a betting table. And at the betting table, 
people can take some work that they've shaped and they can actually kind of package it up into a pitch and then say, here's something I think that we should do in the next cycle. For us, that's a six-week cycle, not a two-week sprint. And this notion of making a deliberate choice about what you want to do next instead of just pulling from a backlog and just having three or four things on the table that have been really carefully put together and carefully considered that are timely and contextual, that's a very, very different thing than having some giant list of stuff that you never got to and then trying to constantly groom it or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. But before we get to the betting table, wait, I have two questions I want to ask about the shaping process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you said a couple of times we are doing the shaping and they as the team. When you say we and they, who who are those groups? Because one of the questions, it's a little bit of a leading question because I actually read Shape Up with one of the tech leads that I work with. And we love a lot of the sort of what we could pick up as the emotions behind the process and the intentions. But it felt a little exclusive who gets to be shaping and who doesn't get to be shaping. And I'm just curious about that. That's a great question. So that's where the principles meet the specific tactics. You know, At our current size, we have two core product teams that are developing on our web app every cycle in parallel. We've also have two mobile teams and we've got a handful of teams that are more deeply technical doing other things. So we're a lot bigger than we were when we were first starting. You know, when we did the first version of Basecamp, it was just three of us who built it. You know, when it was three of us, everybody did everything, <laughs> you know? So um, we would have to sort of alternate, you know, one way to describe this is we talk about people versus hats. At a certain size, you don't have separate people for different functions. You don't have a shaper and a builder, you know, you don't have a manager and a programmer. You just have like two or three people who do everything, right? But you still have to be conscious and deliberate about what phase of work you're doing because there's still the difference between the raw egg and the omelet. So we talk about kind of putting on the shaping hat or putting on the building hat, you know, or putting on the betting hat to say, what are we doing right now? And where are we in terms of this process that needs to unfold? You know, So at our current size, it doesn't make sense for everybody to stop what they're doing and to try and define the next project. We have a great variety and expertise, and this is kind of a luxury of having, you know, I'm not quite sure how big the teams are you're working with. We have about, a, like I said, about a dozen people doing product now. So the other designers are... 10 times better than I am at actually putting an interface together, making the, all the fine-tuned, the hundreds and thousands of little judgments that you have to make one after the other about not only the visual design and the proportion, but also how the markup and the CSS, how everything comes together. I mean, they are amazing. And at the same time, I have put more of my attention and focus over the years into understanding sort of what's important for the business how the different parts of the app cohere together into a larger whole, how that larger whole fits from a supply side against the demand side of what people are trying to do and what's valuable in the market that we're trying to grow in. You know, So it's just because of putting my attention in a different place, I have a different expertise. So from that standpoint, it feels natural for me to sort of define a different role for myself that's not just quote unquote designer. It's actually more about this shaping work and it feels really complimentary and it feels like we work really well together because we actually have this clarity about the difference in our roles. So that's kind of from a design standpoint. From a technical standpoint, we need to have some kind of a technical 
input on the work that we shape. Otherwise, it's just going to blow up in our faces the second we give it to a team, right? At the same time, we also can kind of slow down and zoom into that process. I find that programmers and designers are wired very, very differently. And programmers have this thing where their minds are almost like, I think of it kind of like a gas particles that fill a container. The gas particles completely fill the container evenly, you know? And when a programmer takes on a problem, they immediately go to this place of completeness and thoroughness and covering every case and being totally logical, you know? And this is a superpower that they have. They can be like, well, what about this case? And what about that case? And what about this? And they want it all to be one logical whole. That is fantastic when you already have an idea on the table and it's like, hey, is this going to work or not? Is this feasible? And then they can say, well, no, what about this? No, what about that? No, what about this? Right. But if you start with technical people too early in the process, what can happen is it can actually be difficult for you to have the sort of freedom to just say, what about this? And the idea is totally quarter baked and doesn't quite work yet. And you're just trying to come at it from a customer facing standpoint. And there isn't really a technical solution. Very often, really good technical people aren't very comfortable in that phase where it's like not clear what it is. There aren't clear rules yet. There aren't clear boundaries yet. So it can be really productive to have kind of this back and forth in the shaping process where it's led with a customer facing idea. There's some early design work to sort of frame up, I think, it could be an interface like this and you go from here to there and you go from here to there and that's how it would work. And then you bring that to a programmer that's more senior that you trust and you say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, And then they can push back and you can trade concessions back and forth where they say, well, I get that you want to do that, but that's going to be a total pain to rip up all this code that we already have. Is there a way to make it exist with this pre-existing system? You say, aha, okay, maybe we could adjust the concept, you know, and you have this back and forth. So I see that a lot where there's kind of a, almost a lead designer in the shaping role and a kind of lead or trusted technical person in the shaping role. And the designer is kind of pushing it. And the technical person is sort of the reality check and pushing back and helping to make it realistic, you know? And then sometimes you can also just look together. You could be in front of the whiteboard, drawing out the breadboard for how it's going to work. And you could have an insight together too, you know, but it is, that's very different than pulling a whole team into a room and trying to come up with what to do next, you know? That makes a ton of sense. And I think what's interesting is listening to is sort of dig deeper into it. It sounds a lot like, I think what a lot of us do just with different words and slightly different timing. But when we're thinking about a drift goal setting and what the question of, okay, so what are we going to do? And we think about, okay, these are the, you know, biggest opportunities of problems we could solve for our customers. That's sort of a version of shaping just in set a different way, right? It's sort of, we're narrowing down the problem. We're narrowing down who the target customer is. We're narrowing down sort of what we think could happen. And then we're going to the teams and saying, okay, we've sort of drawn out the sandbox. Now it's your turn to take this and make it a reality. Yep, exactly. So then you've done the shaping, you've figured out what the things are that are on the table, so to speak, and then you get to the betting table. And I thought this was quote from the book was really awesome, where you said, they look at pitches from the last six weeks or any pitches that someone purposely revived and lobbied for again. Nothing else is on the table. There's no giant list of ideas to review. There's no time spent grooming a backlog. There are just a few well-shaped risk-reduced options to review. The pitches are potential bets. If we decide to bet on a pitch, it goes into the next cycle to build. If we don't, we let it go. So Help me understand the, how you make the decision on which things you pick and which things you don't pick. So this question comes up pretty often. And 
One of the things I've noticed is that we like to have frameworks for things, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly I'm trying to get, okay, what's your framework? Can I use it? Yeah, totally. And one of the things that I find it really helpful to be just really direct and honest about is that at the end of the day, somebody is in charge and somebody decides what to do. And whoever has the power to do that doesn't need to justify what they're doing with any kind of a framework. You know, at the end of the day, like if you have like, so for example, like Jason's the CEO here and he is the last word on product, he can come up with an idea in the shower tomorrow and say, guys, this is what we're doing. You know what I mean? And that's it. Like there doesn't need to be a framework. It's just what he wants to do because it's his company. And I actually think that's healthy because a lot of the times we kind of pretend that there isn't that sort of asymmetry, you know, in decision-making. And if we really take that head on as there are people who are in a role to make decisions about what to do, their decisions can even be arbitrary or based on a gut feeling or based on some conversations that they're having that we're not privy to. There's so many things behind that. And rather than trying to ground it all in a framework, if we kind of try to get to know that person or try to understand the context that they're in and how they're seeing the world right now. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a more productive starting point for us as people who might not be in that position to relate better, you know? So how, yeah, that's interesting. And I I love the sort of direct honesty because you're right. At the end of the day, someone is making a decision. And I agree that a lot of times, I think about this with prioritization where I think that people try to put a lot of math and structure on a process that at the end of the day is someone making a call. Yeah, it's actually prioritization theater. Exactly. And then they... It's sort of like, well, I'm trying to make this decision objective so that I'm not to blame. I always see it that way where someone's like, well, I did the math and this is the thing that came out. So we're going to do it and it's not my fault. So I love the honesty. But the question I have is how do you help people learn to make those calls? If there's like, how do you sort of peel back the decision and help the people who might want to be in the room learn how to do that? Oh, that's really good. So I mentioned a few points in the book. I think that if you really wanted to go down into this, this would be a whole nother book on strategy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But basically... So can I get your strategy book in 30 seconds? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the first thing that can be very helpful is to have a very clear difference in your mind between the demand side and the supply side, or just what we call problem definition and solution definition. So why is this important right now? Who's hurting? Or what's the opportunity that the window of opportunity that would be closing if we didn't do it now? You know, so what's bad about not doing this right now? <laughs> you know, I like that. Yeah. If we can't articulate that, then we're not addressing the time factor because prioritization isn't about, you know, sort of why is this good? It's about why is this the right thing to do now? Because there's so many other things we could be doing. So it's really a question of what context are we in? why is this a problem or why is this an opportunity? And if we don't do it now and we do something else, like why is that worse? You know? So that's a really big part of it. The other part of it is we talk in the book quite a bit about appetites instead of estimates. Yep. So an estimate is where you take some chunk of work and you assume that it is what it is. And then you say, how long is it going to take? And that's kind of like saying, I need a car. How much does a car cost? Well, <laughs> what yeah. you, you know, are you going to go buy a, a Porsche or, or are you going to get a Toyota? You know what I mean? So there has to be this notion of, well, what do you want? How much do you care about it? How important is it to you? So we talk about appetite in the sense of 
something could come up in the sense of, you know, like we are getting requests all the time for this group notification feature, right? And we were hearing about it from support. We're hearing about it from this and that. We should really do something about it. Okay. Well, should we do something about it? Like as a two week project, should we do something about it as a six week project? Or should we do something about it as in like rewrite the whole app around this concept? Where does it stop? Mm-hmm. How much is it worth? You know? And then if we can express it as an appetite and say, you know what? I think that I would feel good about coming up with, if we could address this in a small two-week project and add a little, using our existing notification channels, add a way to sort of notify multiple people at once as a group, that would be enough, you know? Versus somebody else might have a different idea about how to define the project as, no, this is fundamentally about rethinking how we do notifications and it's a whole bigger thing, you know? And then you have the way to untangle that is to really talk about the problem, not so much the solution, you know, and why it's so important. And then the other aspect is we might have a clear problem definition. We might have a reasonable solution in mind. We do actually need to check the solution and say, yeah, that might work, but do we actually like it? Is that where we want to go? You know, and then we've got the question of appetite. Is it the amount of time we want to spend? And then we also have other contextual factors like who's around, who's on vacation, you know, like maybe you have somebody who is really particularly good at deep JavaScript work. And the thing that you're thinking about doing has some really high fidelity interactions that's going to require their expertise. They should probably be around if you're going to do that project, right? Or maybe the other factor is what type of work have you done recently? So if you've only been doing really big new features, maybe there's kind of a sense from some corners of the company that there's a lot of little kind of broken things that need some attention, you know? So it's like, okay, let's take a turn toward a small batch and doing a whole bunch of little improvements for the next cycle instead of a big feature so that we can kind of feel like we've cleaned house a little bit and then we can go back and do something big again afterward, you know? Yep. So what happens when the project goes past your appetite? Mm. I'm assuming, I know you talk about that in the book a little bit, and I'm assuming that you guys have been through that process. And I think what I'm, what we were talking about together, this tech lead and I beforehand was loss aversion and how hard it is to walk away from something, especially as a person who might be really deep in the weeds, who's been trying to get it done. Yeah. So yeah. How has that played out for you guys? Yeah, that feeling of kind of being deep in the weeds, mm-hmm. we call it hero mode. You know, you go into hero mode, like I am going to conquer this and solve it and yeah. fix it. That's really unhealthy. We really want to avoid that mentality. So what we're trying to do is create a sort of structural frame where we want to take away the incentive for that kind of a thing. In the book, I call it the circuit breaker. And the notion is that if we define our appetite for a piece of work as, let's say, a six-week cycle, So we're going to do one project for six weeks and the team is going to be totally uninterrupted and they're just going to be tasked with this one thing. The team has the expectation set that at the end of the cycle, they're going to deploy and it's going to be done. And if that doesn't happen, if the work doesn't deploy at the end of the six-week cycle, something went wrong. And we want to have a moment where the fact that something went wrong comes to our attention and we don't just automatically reinvest in that. You know, the notion of a bet, you're sitting there at the poker table and you put some chips forward. Your chips should never start multiplying on you out of your control. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You don't want to... Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Like, what kind of an insane universe is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? The whole notion of a bet is that you have a capped 
a controlled downside. You say, I'm willing to bet this much. If I lose the bet, I lose that much and not more, right? So if I bet six weeks on a project and then we schedule it and then it starts to happen, if that project starts to take eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, I'm spending money that I never wanted to spend because maybe it's not, maybe the project isn't worth that, you know? Or maybe we were four weeks into the project and some fantastic new idea struck us over the head and we say, oh, next cycle, we absolutely must do that thing. Or what if a crisis came up and we started to become aware of like some underlying performance problem and we said, you know what, absolutely next cycle, we have to get in there and fix that job queue so those jobs are asynchronous instead of synchronous. Otherwise, the app's going to blow up, you know? So you never know what's going to come up that is going to, and what you're going to feel is actually going to be most important two weeks from now when the next cycle starts, let's say, or five weeks from now or wherever you are in the cycle. So we want to create a circumstance where we never automatically pay more than we bet on. So then at the end of the cycle, if the work isn't done, by default, the circuit breaker pops. And the default is the project is canceled. There's no way that we're going to automatically reinvest in it. Something went wrong. And you walk away. And by default, we walk away. There's a couple of aspects to this. First is we should look at the second order of this. If you know that that's how things work, that changes the way that you think about the work. Right. Yeah. It's not like you didn't know this was coming and you're sort of emotionally taken aback by having to walk away. Exactly. So when we're doing the shaping, we have to make sure that we find the rabbit holes as much as well as we can and set up the guardrails as well as we can so that we improve the odds of success when we give it to the team, right? So we're thinking about that danger when we're shaping. Then when the team takes it on, and I didn't mention earlier, but you know, we don't assign tasks to teams. We give them the entire project and they create their own tasks. So as the team is figuring out how to actually build this thing, they have the awareness in their mind that they need to take on the biggest unknowns and the biggest risk points earlier in the six weeks so that they don't let something linger that could blow up on them at the last minute and then put the project in danger of not shipping as well, right? So everybody's actually aligned and looking at this from the same perspective because they see the risks. So it's kind of like we all have some skin in the game here, you know? And it's a totally different perspective than let's hack at this for two weeks and see where we get you know? Yep. So everyone is in this different mood. Then the end of the six weeks comes and let's say something doesn't actually make it, which can happen and has happened from time to time. Not very often for us because of all these other aspects that I talked about, but it can still happen. Then because the project is by default, not getting more investment, it gives us this opportunity to look at it with a very critical gaze and say, okay, where is this work actually? And here's where we use the language of uphill and downhill. So I talk about the hill chart in part three of the book. We distinguish between work that has unknowns in it, where it's like, yeah, we still have to figure out how to connect it to the geocoder. And we haven't actually used the geocoding API before, but we kind of think we know how it's going to come together. That's very different than looking down in the palm of your hand and seeing six screws in your hand and looking over and seeing a few piles of wood on the ground and seeing six holes where the screws go. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the tech lead I've been talking with about this book, we have been working on a project where we were very much on the uphill, and I don't think we really knew how much further we had to go on that slope. 
So it, that was such a relevant topic for us to kind of work through because we had this project. We were working on it. It was super big. It definitely was going longer than we thought it would go because we had all these unknowns we had in scope. So we were working on this project while reading the book and sort of talking through this whole thing. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. That This difference between unknown and known is so much more important than quantity of work. Yes. You know, very often when you become more certain about what to do, you actually have more tasks because all of a sudden you see all the little things that you need to do to get it done. So actually the number of tasks outstanding can actually be a backwards indicator of where you stand progress wise. So if we get to the end of the project and we recognize that we're actually still uphill on some open problems, that is a very different risk profile than if we realize that we're downhill and we can completely see every little task that has to happen. It's all in the palm of our hand and it's just a question of time and effort. If we're downhill, then we might say, you know what? Okay, we'll give it the extra week or the extra two weeks that it needs because we are very, very sure it's in that category of risk that we're very confident that it's going to get done. If we still have open problems, man, you know, open problems have a totally different probability distribution. It's like we talk about, you know, I mentioned a little bit thin tail versus fat tail risk in the rabbit holes chapter of the book. An open problem, you might wake up tomorrow and solve it. But you might also scratch your head at it for the next three weeks, or it might even be unsolvable. So what are you betting on? You don't really know. So if there really are open problems in it, everyone is better off just canceling the project, doing something else in the next cycle that's already shaped, that you feel more certain about, that you feel more confident about. And then if someone feels like that project that didn't finish really should still happen, then you have a process to put it through, put it back through the shaping process to have another look at it and say, is there something about the solution that we defined that leaves this hole in it, you know, or can we come up with a different solution that doesn't have that gap in it, you know? And then if we come up with a different approach, maybe we find out that it really is only another week of work, but because we took the time to sort of do the shaping on it, to sort of put it through a little bit of a stress test in terms of the concept And then also, again, deliberately bet on it. So it needs to come back to the betting table and say, at this specific point in time, for the next six weeks that lie in front of us, is finishing this thing actually more valuable than maybe the exciting new opportunity that we just thought of yesterday? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, we had sort of organically done a couple of those steps. I think our first cycle, maybe we didn't properly shape, we didn't properly understand. And we had a moment where we said, okay, we need to reshape and whatever that looks like for us and then recommit to this. And I, I think the thing that made it worth us doing it, or at least we thought made it worth it for us to do it back to back was that the size of the possible outcome was so large that we felt like it really was worth it, even though maybe this hadn't gone the right way and we hadn't really done it the right way. But we still believe that if we nail the thing that we're trying to do, the outcome will be so great that it's worth this sort of more painful process. And that's fantastic. I mean, that's really what that betting mindset is all about, you know, is really having that conversation. So it sounds like I think the team hasn't shipped yet. So, (laughs) okay. Well, fingers crossed, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I think the teams that are really kind of doing well, the teams where you have good people who are working together and really kind of trying to ask the hard questions about what to do are doing some of these things, but they might not have the language for it. So I'm hoping that also just by putting the words on it, it facilitates the conversation. 
you know? Definitely. Yeah. And once you become better able to have the conversation, then you can also more easily identify the things where you might not be spending enough time or you might, maybe you need to be more deliberate than you're being, you know? Yeah. It opens up a lot of doors there. Yeah. And I think it really gave us a way. I Anytime you find something like this, it gives you a way to talk about something that, especially if you're a team that's in the thick of something that you, I mean, everyone can feel it when it's not going perfectly. And if you like, to your point, if you don't have the words or a way to talk about it, there are so many emotions that it makes it so hard to bring it up. Because like, who wants to be the person that, you know, six weeks into some really tough thing that's not on time, it's not going well, who wants to be the person to put up their hand and say, hey, team, do we really want to do this? Totally. And it's a very different conversation to say, I think there's a hole in the work here. Like, I think there's a problem in the structure of this thing we're trying to do, as opposed to, I suck and I can't come up with how to do this. Right. Or, hey, engineering team, why are you so behind? Totally. Exactly. When the people who are doing the programming, for example, can say, look, part of the solution that you thought when you did the shaping was going to be fine, actually has a lot of interdependencies in it that we didn't anticipate. And now there's some unknowns here. If they can point to an unknown, Now we all sort of have this flag that's planted in the project where trouble is, and we can all kind of team up around it to either redefine the solution or come up with some sort of a scope cut or whatever it is that we need to do. We might need to all integrate, you know, from product to design to engineering to sort of figure out together, how do we work our way around this giant pit that we almost fell into, you know? And that's a really powerful collaborative moment because then you can actually come up with a really great solution. You're like, you know what? We don't even need separate database fields for this. Let's just use a text area and it's actually going to be fine because this isn't even what the core of the feature is about, right? Like those kind of things can happen and then everyone can move on and have a big success. And it's not about like, you didn't get your task done. It's more about what's the work and is it the right work or not? Yep. Well, I could literally spend all day talking to you about this, but we are running out of time. So I just want to ask you really one last question, which is when you think back over your career at Basecamp, you know, what's one or two pieces of advice that you would give to people who are up and coming in product or who want to be in product about, you know, what they should do in their career? I actually think that the biggest thing you can do for yourself as a product person is to become more technical. And that can go in two directions. Technical can mean different things. So generally, technical means maybe learning how to program or something like that. I don't think you need to be a programmer, and I don't think you need to know how to code to be a good product manager. But you do need to be technically literate. And literacy has different levels to it. And if you can understand kind of how programmers deal with software, what the difference is between a model and how they model a problem, what the interdependencies are what they mean when they talk about separating concerns. These types of things can give you really a leg up if you're interested in the sort of programming side of the world. And if you're interested in the design side of the world, being able to actually breadboard and fat marker sketch real concepts yourself as a product person and being able to speak the language of affordances and flows and interactions, going deeper into that direction or becoming more technical about strategy understanding better the difference between the demand side and the supply side and where requirements come from and how to negotiate what is important in terms of the problem definition, whatever it is, go deeper into real knowledge about the real work. 
And then you can have conversations either if you go deep in strategy, you're having different conversations above you with your bosses. If you're getting into programming, you can have deeper conversations with the engineering folks, you know, or with design, you can lead more and do more shaping work on your own. I think those are all different opportunities to go into. And it's all about kind of get into that world and go deeper in your knowledge because product management isn't really a job. (laughs) I have to say, like, there's no real skill of product management per se. I actually think it's mostly shaping and betting. And those bring in very specific skill sets. The shaping brings in more design knowledge. It brings in a bit of technical knowledge and the betting brings in more strategic understanding. So I would kind of, you know, use the book as a map of what the different skill sets are, the different hats you need to wear, and then find ways to become more proficient in those things. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredible. I really appreciate you taking the time. You had great questions. Thanks a lot for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. 